Hello and welcome to Bone Up, the podcast all about bones, how we make them, why we break them, and if we fully understand them. I'm David Armstrong. Hi, and I'm Richie Abel. And over this series, we're going to be exploring osteoporosis, bones, what we know and what we're yet to discover. And we hope you will join us on the journey. So for anyone keen to learn more about our infrastructure of calcified collagen, this is Bone Up. Welcome, listeners, to a new episode of Bone Up. How are you doing, David? I'm doing well, thanks, Richie. We're uh, here in high summer in the Northern Hemisphere, although it's uh, it's another cloudy day today. Um, things used to be a bit quieter in the hospitals over the summer, but I think those days are gone. We seem to be just as busy as we as we ever were. And how about you? The same. Um, it used to be that summers were a bit more relaxing, but nowadays we just seem to be busy the whole year through trying to keep the research going and writing up the work that's been done over the previous year. It's an exciting time, but um, I'm quite tired and I need a holiday. (laughs) What plans have you got for the new year? Well, for the sort of the new term coming up, I suppose one of the things apart from doing my normal NHS job is, uh, is we've got a face-to-face osteoporosis conference coming up in September, which is one of the things that you and I have both been involved with the planning uh, with the Royal Osteoporosis Society. Um, So that's exciting. It's exciting to be working on a program, to be inviting experts from all around the world and to be to be seeing all our friends again from the world of bone research. And it's it's a great chance again to get clinicians and researchers together to talk about how we can do better for patients. I'm really excited about the conference in Manchester. I think the title is Equity in Bone Health, which is a very pertinent title at the minute. Uh, The Royal Osteoporosis Society, who are organizing the conference, have been very active lately. They seem to be doing a lot of good work, and it's going to be great to hear an update. And there's loads of wonderful speakers at the conference, and I've heard a lot of them before, but it's always nice to hear what they've got to say. It's always a really good learning experience, and it's Honestly, I think first and foremost, it's nice to catch up with friends and I'm looking forward to seeing you there. <laughs> yeah, that'll, that'll, that'll be good. As you say, we're, we're focusing on, on sort of equity of access um, at the conference. And I think that's, that's important. We talk about all these exciting drugs and, and so on, but it's really important that everyone who needs them has access to them, no matter where you live in the country, no matter uh, whether you're male or female or whether, you know, whatever ethnic group you come from or lots of different people that we see we need to make sure that everyone has the same access to to the services we provide and sort of of, of look at, at how we do that so um yeah that'll be that'll be an interesting part of of what's coming up speaking of equity i've been trying to write some papers and grants in the last few months and i always have to begin with an explanation of osteoporosis and i always try and think of sort of insightful off the cuff ways to try and explain it to get people interested I feel that a lot of people tend to think about osteoporosis as a condition that really affects old people, and in particular, older women. But looking at the literature, it seems that actually 
a lot of young people are affected by osteoporosis. Have you got any experiences in your clinic? Yeah, I think particularly working in the hospital as a sort of secondary or even tertiary referral centre, I probably get a disproportionate number of young people at the clinic. It's one of those difficulties, I think, Richie, you're quite right to get the attention of those who would give grants for funding, to get the attention of the media, to get the attention of politicians. You sometimes have to try to prevent and provide an interesting story, and often that involves young people. Um, whereas, of course, the majority of patients with osteoporosis are still are still postmenopausal women. Um, but yeah, I do see a, I do see a fair number of young people at the clinic. I would suppose I would divide them into into a number of groups. Certainly, the first group would be those who have taken steroids for some condition, glucocorticoids, often things like asthma or or types of arthritis or inflammatory bile disease. And as we know, and as we've discussed before, taking steroids in the long term can be very bad for your bone health and significantly increase your risk of, of osteoporosis. Um, so they've always been a group of people in their maybe sort of 30s or 40s who have quite low bone mineral density uh, related to steroids. There's another group of people we've been seeing more of, I think, in the last few years, and those are people with eating disorders and other conditions related to that, um, who are a very interesting group of people to treat, sometimes more complex, um, because eating disorders, and particularly anorexia nervosa, uh, often results in, in poor bone health. The reasons for that are complex. Uh, it's sometimes perceived that low weight in itself uh, contributes to low bone density, and, and it does, but often it's linked to, to the menstrual cycle and, and, of course, to nutritional needs in general. So I think there's an increasing awareness of that, and I certainly see an increasing number of young people with eating disorders at the clinic. And then again, there's probably a third group of people coming through, um, and those are, are people who have serious long-term conditions um, who are being better treated as children and as adolescents and as a result are surviving into adulthood. There are sadly a, a range of conditions which in the past caused people to die young, caused them to die as children. But as those people do better now, there are new drugs, there are better ways of, of, of looking after them. And as they survive into adulthood, often they carry various chronic problems with them. And one of them is, is quite often low bone mineral density with the risk of fracture. Um, sometimes that's inherent in the condition and sometimes it's because they have, again, taken a lot of steroids as children. And that's challenging um, and, and challenging in a good way at the adult clinic because we're having to sometimes learn about conditions which we just didn't see in adult medicine before. And we're having to learn how to think um, and how to involve and talk to and try to get into the headspace of someone who has now turned to be 18 or 19 and is living with a with a chronic condition they've had sometimes since birth. So, uh, yeah, lots of young people at the clinic, lots of challenges, but again, positive challenges, I think, because it helps us think about, you know, how we how we do medicine and how we communicate with patients. What potentially life limiting conditions do you see in your clinic, David? where the treatments might cause osteoporosis? I mean, I, I suppose the commonest by some distance at a day-to-day -day clinic would be patients with cancer. 
um, particularly patients whose cancer is considered not curable but treatable um, and often those patients will have a steroid or they will have had other sort of hormone blocking drugs which can cause quite significant osteoporosis and fracture um, and in those cases then there's always that playoff between the benefits of getting the osteoporosis drugs but just how quickly those drugs work and the potential side effects of those drugs because quality of life is of course is of course important there are some of those other conditions that i was talking about that uh, patients are now surviving longer with out of childhood um, cystic fibrosis uh, certainly in certain parts of the world used to be very common which is a serious lung condition and a condition that affects absorption in, in the gut and used to reduce the length of people's lives very considerably and would cause osteoporosis but people are now doing much better from that but are living into adulthood and, and presenting with with very low bone density and fracture risk and of course then there's always those conditions um, that require a lot of steroid and, and particularly people who've been on high doses of steroid in childhood which will lengthen lives which is really good but will cause severe osteoporosis and probably the one that most most obviously springs to mind for that is is Duchenne muscular dystrophy uh, which is one of the one of the muscular disorders uh, it's a condition uh, which affects which affect young boys almost always it's what's called an x-linked condition in other words uh, the gene passes from the mother to the son occasionally mothers can be affected the kind of muscle weakness in later life but it's the boys that are quite severely affected they have weakness of their muscles in early childhood and without treatment usually by the age of maybe eight or nine they're unable to walk unaided any longer um, and would need to use a wheelchair um, there is there has been uh, extensive use of steroids in, in the last uh, number of years which can extend the period of time uh, during which these boys are able to walk and don't need a wheelchair. But it also can cause significant problems with puberty and with the development of, of normal bone density. And uh, these patients, therefore, are at high risk of fracture and indeed do often go on to fracture, particularly vertebral fractures, which, as we know from other episodes, are, are painful and, and debilitating. And even though the great news is that these boys are now surviving to transfer to adult clinics, which is great, so I get to see them, but they're coming to me already on lifelong steroids and already with low bone density and often with, with, with fractures. Um, and therefore, it's, it's, another, you know, it's another complex and challenging and interesting group of, of people to see at the adult clinic. Listeners, this brings us neatly on to our guest for today who's going to talk to us about management of osteoporosis with Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Today, we're very excited to announce our guest, Dr. Gerard Wong on the podcast. Hi, Gerard, how are you? Hi, Richie, how are you? And hi to you, David. Hi, Gerard, it's a real pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Gerard, you're a clinical senior lecturer and consultant paediatric endocrinologist with a special interest in bone working at the University of Glasgow, uh, where you do your clinical work in the Royal Hospital for Children. I was wondering if you could just begin by telling us about your clinical practice and the patients that you work with. 
So thanks, Mitchie. So you're right. So I'm a consultant pediatric endocrinologist, um, but with an academic appointment, meaning I also do research and teaching within the University of Glasgow. A consultant pediatric endocrinologist looks after children and adolescents with uh, problems with their hormones, their different glands in the body. And within pediatric endocrinology, um, a large proportion of my caseloads and patient load also involves um, children with various different issues with growth and puberty. Um, my special interest also is in um, bone metabolism, so children with um, rare bone disorders, but also children with um, bone disorders or osteoporosis as a result of chronic ill health, which is something that we are increasingly seeing more of as management and treatment of various different childhood chronic disease has improved uh, over the last 10 to 20 years or more. And Jarrod, we caught up with you at the BRS in 2022, where we had a discussion about childhood diseases, and we spoke very briefly about Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Would you just remind the listeners what the condition is? So, yes, that's right, Richie. Um, so certainly in pediatric practice, or those of us who see pediatric bone disorders, the numerous um, chronic disorders which leads to osteoporosis and one of the um, uh, bone disorders, uh, chronic disorders which lead to um, significant bone issues is a rare condition, a rare muscle condition called Duchenne muscular dystrophy. And it is a um, X-linked disorder, meaning it predominantly only affects boys um, and it causes muscle wasting or muscle disorders. These children are effectively born with that condition, but issues are usually present within the first few years of life and diagnosis is, uh, usually happens four to five years of life. And it causes progressive muscle wasting where these boys will eventually lose the ability to walk and without any management and therapy will lead to, unfortunately, uh, early mortality. Um, but this is a condition which obviously with the muscle weakness itself and those other factors can lead to devastating osteoporosis and bone um, and bone weakness. Some of the people listening to us will probably know about Duchenne muscular dystrophy and, and, and others won't. Just in terms of the disease course, what age do the boys get to normally where they have difficulty walking? Because most people end up as wheelchair users. What age does that sort of occur at? So that's right, David. Um, without any treatment, the majority will actually end up using a wheelchair fully by late childhood, um, um, between sort of like a nine to eleven years of age, and with uh, death expected around late adolescence without any treatment. But the trajectory of this course of this condition has improved over the last twenty years. Um, and that's with the introduction of better healthcare, multidisciplinary care, better protection of the heart and the lungs, but also the use of a, a medicine that alters the trajectory of the disease called steroids, which perhaps a lot of the listener will know of in different contexts. And in that case, in steroid-treated boys with Duchenne, um, the average age of losing the ability to walk and needing to use wheelchair fully is in adolescence, approximately sort of the 13 to 15 years of age, with mortality extending to about the 30s instead of in adolescence. So this isn't a primary bone condition, but you and I might see patients as bone experts because 
they develop osteoporosis and they develop fractures, well, because of the treatment or because of the condition or, or because of because of other things. And we're extending that ability to be mobile by what you're saying, maybe three, four, five years by by using steroids, which is is good, but then it has long-term consequences, doesn't it? So what's the story with osteoporosis in, in patients with this condition? So I think it's multifactorial, so meaning there are lots of reasons why bones are fragile or weak in boys with Duchenne. So we know, and the listenership perhaps will understand, that weak muscles, a lack of physical activity and stimulus during childhood will lead to weaker bones somewhat. And there are some animal studies which suggest that um, animal models uh, or animal studies of um, models of um, Duchenne muscular dystrophy do have some bone weakness. And certainly the use of steroid compounds or worsens the um, bone weakness of bone fragility to a lot of extent by a direct impact of weakening the bones themselves and the cells that um, lead to the formation and the breakdown of bones, the structure of the bones themselves, the density of the bones themselves, as steroids which is used over a long-term period is a tablet daily steroids which is taken from early childhood all the way to uh, to adulthood also causes poor growth almost no growth at all it hampers the onset of puberty and growth in puberty in childhood is very very important to make bones stronger and thicker there are also other factors some uh, some young people with uh, muscle weakness for instance may not spend as much time in the sun and Vitamin D deficiency and nutritional deficiencies like calcium deficiency certainly can contribute a part to that. And some of these boys, because of the use of long-term steroid, need to take medicines to protect their stomach, something called proton pump inhibitor, which certainly has also been shown to contribute in part to bone weakness. So you can see that it just does seem that there is a multitude of factors which leads to bones being weak um, as a result of the condition itself and also the use of steroids, which is beneficial in part in slowing down the muscle weakness. And and these boys also fracture bones much more commonly because of the osteoporosis. Is there a particular pattern to the fracture of bones? That's right. So certainly, I guess, if you look at almost practically any chronic disease, and if you look in detail into um, experimental studies or uh, high-resolution imaging, you will probably find some bone deficits. But these boys not only have got um, horrendous um, osteoporosis in terms of the imaging you see of the bones, but they do fracture, and the fracture rate is very high. So even without steroids, boys with Duchenne do fracture, and that speaks to the abnormal bones themselves, particularly the small, thin bones, and the commonest bones, long bones that these boys fracture are actually fracture of the femur or the hip bones, the long bones of the thigh. Um, and they fracture with little injury at all. The majority of the time, just either from falling from a standing or at a walking pace. And this is without any injury. With the introduction of steroids, we find that we're seeing more and more of spine fractures or vertebral fractures. Um, there has been some suggestion that very rare, very rarely you can see vertebral or spine fractures in boys with Duchenne who are not treated with um, steroids. I certainly haven't seen somebody like that. But since the 
um, the, the, the use of steroids much more um, regularly as routine standards of care over the last 10, 15 years, and especially on a daily basis, uh, we are seeing now osteoporosis of the spine with lots of um, boys with vertebral fractures or spine fractures at the back. Jarrod, you were recently awarded a grant, congratulations, to develop guidelines for managing vertebral fractures in boys living with Duchenne. And I understand that you're applying a mixed methods approach. So I guess you're trying to combine some measurements of the patient's health, but also some survey of their opinions. How is a mixed methods approach going to help you design the new guidelines? So in 2018, um, an international uh, care consideration or standards of care managing all aspects of care of boys with Duchenne muscular dystrophy was published. uh, And there are much more detailed guidance on surveillance and management of osteoporosis. It is much more um, focused towards growing children, I must say, and this is something that we probably can't uh, expand on later. And for the first time, it actually recognizes that spine fractures are very common in this condition and in steroid-treated children. And also the fact that spine fracture itself, regardless of bone density, um, is a sign of osteoporosis um, and therefore uh, necessitate uh, introduction of osteoporosis medicine. Um, Now, this guidance suggests that we should start medicines to protect the bones Uh, using medicines called bisphosphonate or medicines that slows down bone breakdown. Once we find fractures in the spine without and even without any back pain, if it's in the moderate category, but not in the mild category. And a few, some of us have actually realized that actually applying this standards of care where we do not treat mild fractures, in fact, actually will almost invariably lead to these fractures progressing in this boy's getting back pain. So the clinical aspect of the study is actually a retrospective study from several centers where we want to report that experience to see what happens with mild fractures without any bisphosphonate therapy. Certainly the experience from my center in Glasgow is that invariably almost as short as a year time, they will present with more mild fractures or the mild fractures will become either moderate or severe. And this is because we believe that this is a condition where fractures are so common, about up to 75% of these boys will develop fractures uh, if you follow them up long enough, that maybe there is a case to think of giving osteoporosis medicine to prevent fractures rather than um, a secondary approach, meaning treating once there is a problem, and in this case, fracture. But to do that, we want to um, ask the opinion of parents and carers and also the young people themselves of whether this is something that they think is useful and also the right timing to do that and also how we do that and the reason being tablet bisphosphonates are not particularly very effective in growing children because uh, not much of it is actually absorbed and the studies not necessarily in Duchenne, but a whole range of other conditions shows that it may not be very helpful in, pre- or in, in helping spine osteoporosis. And therefore, in growing children, we tend to use intravenous bisphosphonate. So bisphosphonate that's given into the drip, 
which obviously has got uh, issues where these young people have to come to the hospital and have to have pokes in the veins. And also for the first infusion usually, but sometimes in subsequent infusions, you actually get reactions where these boys don't feel so well. And for that, we thought that actually developing guidance or guidelines in collaboration with the patients or ascertaining the patient's voice is very important. And this is this piece of research we, which we hope will actually be brought to the next revision of the international standards of care where we can actually marry in the patient's voice as well, which I think is more and more important in rare conditions. That sounds like such a wonderful research project. I see that mixed methods are becoming increasingly important in medicine now and that the voices of patients are are being considered more carefully. It's really interesting that your approach is even extending to the families of the patients as well. And I suppose because these are young people, it's even more important to make the effort to try and get their opinions. That's right. So certainly I'm no expert in qualitative research. I've been very fortunate to be able to collaborate with a professor of nursing whose uh, expertise specifically is in qualitative research, uh, somebody called Professor Lucy Bray in Edge Hill University in Liverpool, whose expertise also extends to interviewing children and adolescents, which I think is actually very important because um, we find that we might be quite good, we think, in asking the opinion of parents and carers, but I think we perhaps may not be very good or maybe not good at all up to much more recently in actually asking the opinion of the young person and ultimately it is their life it is their health and i think their voice is also very important yeah it's isn't it so important and as richie says i think we're slowly waking up to this idea that we have to you know nothing about us without us as they say we have to listen to what patients say and i mean the evidence, for example, I was going to ask, you know, is there evidence bisphosphonate works? Because, as you know, we have evidence bisphosphonate is helpful in postmenopausal women. But as far as I know, there's no huge long-term studies looking at bisphosphonate in, in Duchenne muscular dystrophy. And I suppose, isn't it important as well not to just attribute effectiveness in one group to another? And uh, one presumes even the attitude of a postmenopausal woman who has maybe 20 or 30 years left to live, even to having fractures and to taking preventative treatment may be very different to the attitude of a, of a young man of 18 or 20 who perhaps only has a few years to, to live. That, that's right. So I, uh, that's right, David. So I think, um, you know, and, and what I've learned over time is that I think never make assumptions, ask the patients, right? You know, you might think that something is acceptable to them, but maybe it's not. Um, in terms of the original question of the evidence, certainly the evidence in pediatric conditions or pediatric rare conditions uh, is much limited compared to uh, a much more commoner condition like postmenopausal osteoporosis. But there is building evidence to suggest that bisphosphonate certainly improves bone density in, um, in, in boys with Duchenne muscular dystrophy treated with steroids. While there are no comparative studies, the increase in bone density probably is greater in the intravenous studies, and that perhaps makes sense and talks to that whole issue of the reduce in absorption. Um, and there's certainly one randomized control trial specifically in boys with Duchenne muscular dystrophy who have been treated with um, intravenous bisphosphonate in the form of zoledronic acid compared to no treatment, 
which gives a suggestion that in fact spinal fractures may be lower in the um, treated groups. So for sure, we don't have a lot of very large scale studies in for thousands, and we don't have um, studies for you know five, ten years. That's trial that I mentioned, which was led by um, Margaret Zacharin and Craig Munns in Australia, um, included something like um, a, a total of over just over sixty patients, so about thirty over patients in each arm. So do do you have a conversation with patients then when they reach that age group? Let's say when you're going to start steroids, because being on steroids may keep you mobile for a few more years, but it may increase your risk of painful debilitating fractures substantially. Now, that decision, I presume, is made when these people are still children. And that's a discussion with parents, with children. How do you, how do you have that discussion with, with prepubertal children? So thankfully, I don't have to have that discussion because it's the uh, neuromuscular clinicians or neurologists who have that discussion. And maybe um, up to much more recently, uh, we, and I'm, and, I'm, and I'm speaking in general terms, uh, there is um, perhaps less of a discussion. And part of it is not the, the issue with the clinicians, but we're actually learning a lot more about the risk benefit of medicine. The other thing to say is that there are also different ways and types of steroids that's given in Duchenne muscular dystrophy. There is a steroid that a lot more of us are familiar with um, called prednisolone, but there's also a steroid that's used in Duchenne called the flazacord, which does not seem to be used very much at all other than Duchenne. And the other common way, commonest way of giving it is either giving it on a daily regimen or an intermittent regimen. They give it 10 days on, 10 days off. And we've learned a lot more about that whole benefit and also side effect profile. And much more recent conversations raised by the patient group, but also the clinician community, is how do we navigate that discussion of risk-benefit of, um, well, one, the risk-benefit of taking steroids versus not taking steroids, but also the relative um, risk-benefit depending on the types of steroids you choose. And I'm not sure that we've got that right, but I think that's something that we need to consider further, and perhaps that's also another piece of work which needs to be done in asking these families how they actually want to be um, to be involved in these discussions because you could overwhelm the family with a whole lot of discussion and a whole lot of research at the time of diagnosis but similarly you don't want to not give them um, information Gerald given that you're a pediatrician taking care of children from what I understand the doctors who take care of adults with bone disease are a different speciality how long do you support patients for and do you have to do a handover so that's that million dollar question that I don't think um, there's an absolute right answer uh, and it may have to be different depending on the situation somebody practices in and in some ways maybe also the actual patient itself so i guess you're talking about the concept of transition from pediatric to adult care and i guess the whole transfer to adult care um i think this is something that um i um i'm i think needs to be thought out i tend to see this boys till a little bit older because one uh, probably till their 20s, simply because one of the other side effects, which I've mentioned already of the use of long-term steroids is that puberty is delayed and that um, 
and and needs managing. And quite often, these boys are probably still developing through puberty and maturation and growing till their late teens to 20s. And I think that it's important that I manage that aspect of it, make sure that they've progressed through puberty, they've developed into an adult before I move them on to an adult specialist. Um, The handover happens and they're obviously um, different models of how you do it. Uh, Some some centers, I suspect, do joint clinics or joint discussions. and, uh, and and maybe an ideal uh, situation is when you've got the pediatric and adult specialist looking after these uh, patients for an overlap period. But I suspect these are things that um, still needs to be ironed out and is quite challenging. I can imagine that doctor and patient can build quite a strong bond over such a long period. And you mentioned it's challenging. Is it difficult for doctor and patient when there's a transition? I, I think it's always difficult uh, because um, I, w- I would imagine that, you know, the transition to adult care for any chronic long-term illness, particularly if you've been looked after in a particular setting, it's not just a doctor, but also an environment, particularly hospital, um, the way things work, um, uh, uh, and it's quite different in a different setting. Um, I think uh, it, it certainly can be very challenging. Uh, a, a concept that actually is very helpful in rare conditions is actually having and um, a, a transitioned nurse specialist, for instance, or a patient navigator that helps them navigate that whole process of, I suppose, transitioning from pediatrics to to adult care. We're quite fortunate because we we exist in a hospital uh, complex where the pediatric hospital is literally just next to the adult hospital. In fact, there's a corridor that links us together. So at least they are in principle familiar with the hospital building, parking and surrounding. But there are some patients who have to navigate moving to a completely different hospital building. It's amazing how the design of a building and the organisation of hospitals can impact a patient and their experiences. I mean, this is good news here, isn't it, in some ways, because when you and I were medical students, Jared, you know, we were told we'd never need to transition Duchenne patients to adult care because we we knew that people didn't survive that long. This is great news now that as adult, you know, as an adult bone expert, I'm I'm seeing these patients and having to think to think about that. If I ask, I mean, you said earlier on in this, this the, the, the high rate of osteoporosis, the high rate of fractures, it could be the steroid use. It could be the fact that these patients are usually wheelchair users from an early age and therefore don't have weight bearing. Um, it could be the lack of vitamin D exposure. It could be something inherent in, in, in the condition itself. If I ask you to sort of get, maybe this is unfair, but if I ask you to guess which of these, or let me put that another way, actually, if we discovered a new drug which completely negated the use of steroids, do you think we'd be having this conversation? Do you think this is primarily long-term high-dose steroids or do you think it's primarily something inherent in the condition itself? So I think steroids is the main culprit, so to speak, in regards to spine osteoporosis or spine fractures. So I think if there's actually a medication that works just as well as steroids in terms of delaying the muscle uh, decline, uh, but has none of the um steroid side effects on bone, spine fractures will be reduced, perhaps eliminated. But 
unless we've got a medicine that actually completely rescued dystrophine, which is in fact the the abnormality to deficiency as part of the genetic mutation, i.e. you completely rescue that and rescue that really early and these boys have normal muscle function, we will see we will still see osteoporosis because of the muscle bone connection. And long bone fractures already are reported in patients previously who were not treated with steroids just because when you've got profound and declining muscle weakness, bone density is impaired to some degree, but the thing that we are we effectively see is that they've got small thin bones. So in fact, I would say that you will still see long bone fractures but in the context that you're describing, spine fractures will, if not eliminated, be minimized to a very low frequency. Because I have at least one patient who is a female carrier, is sort of a mother, who herself has quite severe osteoporosis and who does have some symptoms of muscle weakness, who is still mobile, who doesn't take steroids, but has quite severe osteoporosis. And that has made me wonder how much actually it is inherent in the condition itself. Is there any screening of mothers for osteoporosis? Do you know? So no. So again, the whole um, sort of, I suppose, um, carriers or in the literature among patient groups, sometimes they talk of the female Duchenne, although we say, when, and that's why I say it's predominantly a, a condition of males, but female carriers are called female Duchenne, uh, there's still very little understanding of um, the whole natural history of the condition. We do know that um, some do get uh, symptoms, usually much later on in life. There are a very, very, very small number who are so severe where they behave almost like a boy with Duchenne in the pediatric age group. And certainly there are, but, but but the majority do seem to have some muscle weakness in adulthood. And there's no standard of care on screening for osteoporosis in carriers. There's a lot more um, uh, management and also monitoring of other health outcomes like these women are supposed to have echocardiogram of the heart because the heart weakness can happen in the carriers. But I do wonder whether some of these women may have either more severe osteoporosis or perhaps a little bit more early onset or when you compare with a healthy group of women in their 40s or 50s, more of female carriers have osteoporosis in the manner that you know or the adult clinicians know. Are there any new treatments on the horizon? There are various different, there's a whole lot, so this is a lot of strategies that have been investigated. Um, David talks about a medicine which perhaps have less of the steroid side effects, and there's certainly a new uh, steroid-related compound called bamorolone, which looks like steroid, but one of the side chain is different from steroids, which in principle should have the same efficacy as steroid medicines like prednisolone that we know, but potentially very little or none of the steroid side effects. And this has been investigated in clinical trials. Results have been published. And it's shown that it works just as well in the muscle compared with prednisolone given every day. There are some good news in the initial results that we've seen so far is that 
the blood test, which tells us how active these bones are, so the bone formation and bone breakdown um, markers in this new drug is normal, as opposed to it being very suppressed with prednisolone. And the growth is normal in these, in these boys treated with this new medicine. We don't have very much data on fracture yet. Some of the other side effects of steroids with this new compound are still present, including weight gain and also adrenal suppression, which is a, a side effect of steroids. So it's still to be seen whether this drug uh, will have less of an impact on bone and it is being reviewed by the regulators and currently not available for clinical um, use. But in the UK, we certainly have got a cohort of boys who've been on compassionate use following uh, participation in the clinical trials. The Duchenne field has also been um, uh, very rich in all the genetic-based um, medical therapies, including exon skipping and uh, uh, gene therapies. These are being investigated. But it's not been as as easy because dystrophine is the largest gene and there are a whole lot of issues that um, is beyond my expertise. But in, in, in summary, it's not been as easy to deliver um, you know, gene therapy to boys with Duchenne and buddies hopefully will be, um, will be overcome and we may have some positive results in time. But even if we have gene therapy that works, bear in mind that we can't reverse the muscle weakness that's already present. So for gene therapy to finally work, these boys will need to have gene therapy delivered pretty much almost at birth, which obviously um, doesn't quite happen because often the symptoms don't present till at least the earliest around the two years of age. Does that mean that in the future, if there is, a very effective treatment, especially a gene treatment that maybe everybody would have to be screened to identify the mutation. So there certainly is screening program for Duchenne and there are some programs in different parts of the world, different states in the US that's being piloted or studied as a research program. It certainly doesn't exist in the UK, but potentially I can see how if that works, that will be very beneficial and perhaps that's where things are headed. It sounds like a very well-connected and smooth-running community. Uh, how, how many clinicians and researchers do you think around the world are involved in the field? Oh, it's, 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 it's hard for me to answer that question. Certainly, I would say that it's a very well-connected um, community in that in the, in the UK, if I'm speaking in the UK, care of the primary carers of boys with Duchenne muscular dystrophy are delivered by uh, neuromuscular clinicians in the context of the UK North Star Clinical Network. And there are approximately 27 centres that deliver care to these uh, boys. And they have regular meetings and, um, you know, a lot of discussion on clinical pathways. It is also bound by a uh, sort of almost a UK national uh, database or registry where regular um, clinic information is collected um, and as part of this community uh, are the patient groups which are amazing and well connected there is a organization called world to share an organization with numerous organizations from all over the world and within the uk the uh, patient groups work well together with clinicians and one of the patient groups called to share in the uk have in fact um, 
um, delivered a project called DMD Care UK, which is a collaborative project between the patient group Duchenne UK and Newcastle University and all the um, clinicians in the North Star Network to develop uh, UK-based standards of care for patients with Duchenne mus muscular dystrophy and try to overcome some of the barriers of actually delivering care um, in the centre. It's very nice for us to write guidance for 5, 10, 20 of us to write guidance, but the important thing is how we actually mix it to the clinic and sometimes that's lacking and the patient groups have actually been instrumental in getting us all together, um, the neuromuscular clinicians, but also the other specialty um, like the bone endocrinologists and the cardiologists, and the physiotherapists and the gastroenterologists and the nutritionists in this project. So I, I definitely agree with you, Richie. I think it's a, a, a brilliant and an excellent and well-connected community. Mm -hmm. It's a model almost for other conditions, isn't it? How how in Duchenne's it's the patients who are sitting really in the in the driving seat of all this, and the clinicians and scientists are sort of responding to to the sort of lead from the patient, which is which is great. I suppose that brings us neatly onto our last question, Jarrod. I was wondering, how did you find your calling in life? Because it's almost as though you're a specialty within a specialty within a specialty, a paediatrician with an interest in bone, working in rare condition, and even above and beyond that, you've become a specialist in scientific and public communication, like a voice for your community. Uh, that That's a tough question, Richie. I think um, things happen as they happen. Um, I um, So other than Duchenne muscular dystrophy, my work has always been around the area of growth, puberty, body composition and bone development in chronic ill health. I started uh, looking into pediatric inflammatory bowel disease and childhood arthritis. So there's lots of common themes, inflammation, steroids. Uh, but I think I tend to stumble upon things and... If I find that something moves me, I stay with it. And importantly, uh, I've also got a few criteria of myself. I need to, I'll do things if I enjoy the people I work with. I think that's critically important. And if I think I can, if it moves me and I think that it actually makes a difference to the people, uh, i.e. the patients, I, it, it wakes me up at night. Uh, I think over time, those are probably the things that um, leads me to where I am. But a lot of it is by chance, I would say. I stumble upon it, but I then decide whether I stay where I stumble upon. <laughs> That's a very interesting answer. Thank you very much. Okay, we better draw it to a close there. Jarrod, thank you so much for coming to speak to us today. That was really interesting. Oh, thank you very much for having me, Richie and David. It's been a real pleasure, Jared, and uh, I hope to speak to you again uh, again soon. So, Richie, that was uh, that was very interesting to talk to to talk to Jared. Um, what are your takeaway points from that? Then, once it once it sort of settled down, <laughs> it was a really interesting interview. I felt that Jared explained everything around the condition and the treatment of the condition really well, and we also got a very good insight into the clinician's perspective. I would say overall, my biggest takeaway is that I'm impressed by the ambition of the project. Jarrod is aiming to produce and develop international standards of care. 
And I think it's a really wonderful approach that in writing those guidelines, he's really focusing on not just the patients, but also their families to try and find out what they would like to see in the guidelines so that people can get the best management of their condition. And that's a really wonderful and interesting approach. And increasingly, medical research is using qualitative research, research of people's perceptions, thoughts and feelings to help guide clinical research and clinical care. But I think this is a really exemplar case of how qualitative research is being used in order to improve patient care. That's absolutely wonderful. And I hope that uh, lots of people are going to listen to this podcast and maybe think about how they should also be using qualitative research to direct medical research to where it's most needed and to improve the care in the way that's going to benefit patients the most. And it was quite, I felt this was quite a hard, a hard episode to record. Ever since we first spoke to Jarrod and Nicola way back at the BRS conference, I was quite taken aback by Duchenne and what a serious condition it was and how many people are affected by it. And I have a young son and it's a, you know, it's a difficult topic. And it must be, it must be really, really hard for clinicians. And I include you in this when you're working with people who are young and maybe they don't have very long to live and you have to do whatever you can in order to be able to improve their quality of life. And there must be some really difficult discussions there. Yeah, there certainly are. You know, it's one of the other things I suppose I learn as an adult clinician and someone who's trained as an adult clinician um, is involving families in that sense, because most of these patients transfer over to my clinic, you know, around about the age of 18. And up to that age, obviously, their parents and their families have been very involved in their in their care. And, you know, they've always come with their parent. And for Duchenne patients, it's very often their mother they've come with them. And then when they turn 18, you know, they, they do have autonomy. So you're in that situation where you will say to the, you have to say to the patient, do you want your mother to be in the room with us any longer? Because you're my patient and everything you and I talk about is entirely confidential. And if you wanted to be as confidential from your your parents and your carers and everyone else as well. So quite apart from the underlying condition, there's that little sort of bit of management of now treating people as as um you know autonomous adults who possibly in the healthcare system up to now have been treated as children whose parents were there to sort of make the decisions for them so you know that's that's separate from everything else we're talking about about osteoporosis that's another learning experience you know for adult clinicians i mean i've learned i've learned a bit about duchenne muscular dystrophy certainly from seeing patients um it emphasizes for me again and we've we've talked about this before the link between muscles and bones and you know we talked to gustavo duque last year about all the interesting research about how bones and muscles talk to each other and uh it just emphasizes again how muscle diseases affect bones how bone diseases affect muscles and how we often think of these things together jared mentioned how you know, there's still a dearth of research in this area, particularly treating osteoporosis in young men with with Duchenne's. Um, and so much of so much of the research that we use comes really from older people. 
and we're just presuming that the body behaves in the same way. And so there's a big need for specific focused research in young people with osteoporosis, because to be honest, a lot of the stuff we do is really not based in research in this group. And I suppose the other thing, just in general, it it has always, it, it cuts through all the sort of woolly thinking and woolly talking we do to people. You can say to an older person, take this drug, it'll make your bones a bit stronger, it'll reduce your risk of fracture. Do you remember you broke your hip last year? And they'll say, yes, doctor. And, and you know, you, you don't have to be, older people sometimes don't ask the difficult questions. My experience is in seeing patients who are maybe 18 or 19 years old and they know they have a very life-limited condition and they just cut straight through to the questions. You know, you know, they say, how effective is this drug? You know, what are the side effects? How likely is it to actually reduce my risk of a fracture? Uh, how long does it take to work? You know, I, I only have a few years maybe left to live. How long does this take to work? And even questions, you know, the presumption is, for example, that people will do anything to avoid a fracture. That's generally what my clinic is based on. People come to see me because they want to avoid fractures. I can see a young person who said to me, you know, I've had a dozen fractures in my life, right? The way through childhood and, and adolescence. And you're telling me to take this drug that I don't know much about because it'll reduce my risk of further fractures. They may say to me, well, you know, what what difference to my quality of life is having another fracture going to have? And questions like that are, you know, really challenging for someone who you know, has more dealt with adults and dealt with older people. And as I say, it really it really makes you focus in on how the drugs work and what we're actually trying to achieve for patients. And as we've talked in other in other areas, sometimes looking at what you might call extreme cases or very unusual cases does make you think about how you do your job in general and how we look after patients in general. And certainly in this group of patients, I find myself very much, and I think I largely should be in this role as someone who provides data provides support, provides the information, but is to a very strong degree led by the young person and led by the patient as to what's important to them. And in fact, you could get two very similar patients and they could have a very different outlook on whether they want to take the medication, whether they don't, and what their sort of values and hopes and fears are for the rest of their lives. So it can be quite a humbling experience. And um your role as a doctor, I think, is quite different here than it is in, in, in some other groups. Um, and that's always, you know, that's always good. So it was good to think about things differently and then to see how you can maybe even apply those lessons to other patients. A while back, we did what I felt was one of our best episodes on pregnancy-associated osteoporosis when we spoke to Kirsty. I wonder if maybe we need to talk to uh, somebody living with Duchenne to try and get some more insights into this condition, try and get a handle on how they see the doctor-patient interactions from their perspective. I think that would be very interesting. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's the patient's voice is, the, is ultimately is the very important one here because that's at the, the basis of everything that we do. Yeah, you had a very nice phrase in the interview. I think you said, nothing about us without us. I'm, I'm going to try and remember that. I can't claim to have invented that now. Um, uh, I, I, I got that from a from another patient, actually, who also does a lot of work um, about people with disabilities and making sure they have access to 
to services. But yeah, it's a good one to remember. I think it, it summarizes what our, what our attitude should be. Um, while, while we're being honest with each other, I gave a talk the other day and I, uh, I wholeheartedly stole your analogy for osteoporosis being a bathtub slowly emptying with water. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's plenty more of those come from, Richie. Good, good. Okay, we better wrap it up there. Listeners, thank you for joining us. Thanks again to Jarrod for coming and talking to us. See you again soon, David. Bye-bye. Bye now.